Hello and welcome to World Canvas. Uh, this is a program presented by International Programs in the University of Iowa. And as you all know, those of you gathered in this room, we're in a very special location today. We're in the Royal Academy of Arts in London, England. And I'll explain why we're here in just a little while. Joining me on the stage is President Bruce Harold. And uh, we have many, many people in our audience today who've come from near and far to uh, enjoy a beautiful exhibition that is now showing at the Royal Academy. A little bit later in the program, you'll have a chance to hear from the uh, curator, co-curator of this beautiful exhibit on abstract expressionism. Also, two people well known to the University of Iowa, uh, Christopher Merrill, the director of the International Writing Program, and Sean O'Hara, uh, the uh, uh, soon-to-be no longer uh, a director of our Museum of Art, but a wonderful, wonderful guy who's done forever amazing things. No, and no, forever no. a Hawkeye, no, no, there no. you go. We, we have our hooks on Sean, uh, oh, good. at least through the end of the year. Good, good, good. Good. Well, in any case, this is the first time we've had a chance to do a show outside of Iowa, so it's a real pleasure, and particularly a pleasure to have a chance to speak with you, President Harold. So you have been the president of the university for a little over a year now, and I think I'd like to start by asking you, what have you discovered about this place, and what do you find its uh, greatest attributes? Well, you know, I thought you might ask me that. Yeah? <laughs> and I've been thinking that we were in London. And I'm thinking, if you'll pardon it, it's, I would say it's a tale of two emotions. Um, the first is just exhilaration. Yeah. And we've got so much talent, so much potential. Uh, there's been so much warmth and people um, picking me up and explaining what's going on and the history and legacy. In some ways, being here in London and seeing our art mm. is a, just an incredible reminder of that. Uh, on the other side is the issue of all the challenges. Yeah. I, I, it, it's not just an Iowa phenomenon, I think it's a national phenomenon. Um, and actually, I'm, I'm, I was talking to some people yesterday, I think it's an international phenomenon. Most major public research institutions are being, I don't know, maybe shunned fiscally mm -hmm. because there's so many other pressures in our societies mm -hmm. uh, and they're looked at as having a lot of uh, capability and they can fend for themselves. And so we're actually uh, really struggling to try to find, collectively struggling across the entire world, um, how to get ourselves into another era of fiscal health. And so we're trying to reinvent ourselves in a lot of ways. And so it's been a, it's been a wonderfully positive and a wonderful wonderfully challenging set of mm -hmm. opportunities. I knew that when I came into it. So yeah, sure, we'll sure. And you're, you're from a business background. Globalization has changed lots of things. Um, international outlook in an institution that's a uh, you know top-ranked research institution. There have always been international collaborations. There have been linkages between various organizations. Kids go on study abroad. So that part of it isn't new. But what is new about the... Uh, the <laughs> current state of, of public education as it relates to globalization? Well, I think there's several things. I mean, first of all, I, I think the, as I said, I think the issue of um, scarce dollars going to many other things mm -hmm. has, in, in our particular situation, and we're average relative to the other states in the United States, but uh, nevertheless, if you go back 10 years ago, two-thirds of our fiscal budget was paid um, yeah. for education was paid for essentially by our state, and now that's down to 31, 32 percent, um, and it's probably going to continue declining. So if we're going to continue to maintain faculty salaries and, you know, 70, 80 percent of our cost structure are people, and if we're going to get world-class people, which we need, critically need, and, and retain them, then we're going to have to pay those types of salaries, and that means we need to find all sorts of different new resources. I think when you get to the issue of globalization, 
Um, I think, it, first of all, we have students coming from all over the world. If you look at our campus, and uh, we're actually more, more global than we are Iowan in so mm -hmm. many different ways. And, it, and, and that brings with it so many different cultures, which actually is really positive, because I think the, the, more, the more we realize all humans are the same, and the more we celebrate our differences and learn from those differences and that we look at the same problems through different lenses, I think those are wonderful opportunities to spur creativity and the new discovery. At the same time, they create tensions. Um, can't help but note that tension in the current political environment in the United mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I think it's a little wrong-headed to say that we're uh, going to close ourselves in. So I think it's a time to, uh, I think those types of times spark creativity mm -hmm. and discovery. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 have, I think there's a huge silver lining in all this mm -hmm. after we get through the, the, the turbulence. Yeah, sure. Well, you've brought us right back to the title of this program, <laughs> Creation and Discovery, the Unlikeliness of It All. There are people, I'm sure, who are seeing this uh, beautiful exhibition here at the Royal Academy, looking at where these various paintings or, or sculptures come from, and they'll see the University of Iowa there. And obviously one of the reasons we're here this evening is to talk about uh, a masterwork that is at our institution, as uh, speaking about the Pollock, but, um, but there's also a beautiful mother well and other pieces from the University of Iowa here. So you, uh, Chris, Sean, can help give us a little bit of an idea about how it is that a place like the University of Iowa, which many people might say, well, what, where is that? How, how do we get to play a part in art movements around the world? Well, there's something very interesting. I suspect, uh, Sean, I've only been here a year. Sean's been here three, and Chris has been here many, many more. Um, but I, I think there's something, I was actually saying to a couple people a few moments ago, I think there's, a, first of all, our art, in, in this exhibit mm -hmm. at the Royal Academy. I mean, mm -hmm. we're in the big leagues here. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, it's incredible to see how well our art holds and in some ways forms the, the narrative here mm -hmm. at this amazing ab abstract expressionism exhibit that's been curated here. So that, that's one piece of it. But I think there's something different, there's something addition, and I'm, I'm not sure I fully know it. And I was thinking earlier that, that there, there was a, a time several hundred years ago where Florence, Italy, and the Renaissance, and a group of people came together and spurred a whole set of things. There was a similar set of things more recently going on in Silicon Valley for maybe yeah. the last 20 right. or 30 years, and a different, different expression of that. Mm -hmm. Something happened in the late 20s and early 30s that's still, frankly, continuing mm -hmm. to play out, mm -hmm. where we had the creation of an, an amazing set of of gifted people came together and spurred writing programs that are still the international writing program yeah. that Chris, I'm sure, is going to talk about in a few minutes. The, the writer's workshop. Mm -hmm. um, the, and then we have what's known as the Iowa idea, basically in that same decade, which is bringing together this notion that you know, creative works could be held at the same academic level as a written thesis right. and the merging of art history and, and the practicing mm -hmm. of art, and then this creation of the, the Grant Woods and Elizabeth Catlett's, and then the whole set of Jackson Pollock and all the, it's just an amazing environment. And then it goes off in another direction of space and space physics mm -hmm. with Van Allen, and still continuing today with mm -hmm. amazing discoveries in healthcare, yeah. whether it be neurosciences, or Bruce Gantz and the cochlear implant that was created a few years ago by one of our faculty members. So there, there's something about location, maybe in a little bit of, maybe it's good to be a little bit isolated in the middle of the country, mm -hmm. and people start feeding on one another. And one notion of, of, of creation 
purely new ideas and expression of those ideas, whether it be in writing or the arts, actually may trigger discovery in another area that is sort of why we're here yeah. as an institution. And I think a lot of institutions just sort of go through maybe life and, mm -hmm. and may not have many of those, mm -hmm. but some institutions have many after many after many. We've been going on now for 80 or 90 years mm -hmm. on that. Um, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's in our water. Yeah. But there's something magical, and we yeah. don't want to lose it. Yeah. In fact, what we really want to do is embrace it and tell the mm -hmm. rest of the world about it. And, I, and to your mm -hmm. point, people say, Iowa? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Iowa. This, yeah, is, right. this is for real. Right. Right. We it all is. celebrate it. Yeah. Well, this is a wonderful way to start our program. Thank you so much for joining us, and um, I'm sure you'll enjoy the rest of the conversation I can't wait. in just a moment. I can't wait. Well, thank you. All, they all will correct me and get all the facts right. <laughs> no, I think you but, got it right. But at any rate, thank you very well, much thank for doing you. Thank, thank you. Thank you so thank much. You. Appreciate thank it very much. Thank you. Now we have uh, switched out our guests, and, and some of you may know these, these folks, but I'm going to make sure that everybody watching on television and all of you in the room know very well that the co-curator of this beautiful exhibit is Dr. David Anfam, and he's our guest at the far end here. Thank you so much for preparing all of this and for being with us tonight to talk about it. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, next to him is Christopher Merrill, who's the director of the University of Iowa's International Writing Program. Thank you, Chris. So glad to have you here. And this is Sean O'Hara, the director of the University of Iowa Museum of Art. And you are the wizard behind all of this, shipping this uh, big Pollock all I mean, over the world. Breeze, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think we'll start with you, David. Um, uh, some had the opportunity this afternoon to hear you and Sean give a bit of a gallery talk and an introduction to what is actually on display here. But for those of us who didn't have a chance to do that, I wonder if you could just start with a basic description of this movement, abstract expressionism. When when did it begin, and who were some of the principal characters involved? Well, somehow, Joan, I thought you might um, <laughs> pop out the hardest question first. <laughs> From the time in 1946, when the term abstract expressionism was recoined, it had already been used much more obscurely before that uh, with regard to German expressionism around the time of the First World War. But from the time that a critic, Robert Coates, uh, recoined the term, no one has ever quite agreed on what it means. Uh, it's, it's disastrous to name ourselves, said Willem de Kooning uh, at a conference in 1950. The key thing to remember, amongst many, many other points, is that even though the abstract expressionists painted, sculpted, and photographed in very, very different styles, Nearly all of the artists in this show, and there's 30 artists here, at some point or other, they nearly all knew each other socially. So at one level, you can say ABEX, as I call it, coheres as the artists' individuals get to know each other. And people sometimes forget that Philip Guston, who played an important role in Iowa in the 40s, Philip Guston actually met Jackson Pollock at high school in 1927. Really? <laughs> uh, so there's this coherence there, mm -hmm. and very similarly, Clifford still met and was introduced to Mark Rothko on the West Coast in 1943. Mm -hmm. And of course they socialised, there was something called the club, they used the same bar to drink in the Cedar Tavern. But historically speaking, 
The movement, if you want to call it a movement, I personally prefer to call it a phenomenon because it was so complex and because it spanned the east and the west coast of America. It began to gel around and shortly after the Second World War. And one thing that the art has in common is that it expresses a kind of zeitgeist, if you like. I've said it before and I'll say it again. The artists were children of their times and the times they were formed in were dreadful. What some historians call the short 20th century began with the cataclysm of the First World War, was followed by a Second World War, the Spanish Civil War, crucially the Depression, and then as if that were not enough, the Second World War ended with the atom bomb, and then very rapidly seeped into the Cold War. So you've got this climate of tragedy, of historical burdens, if you like, and that comes out in the, the often very tragic, gloomy even nature, retrospective, introspective nature of a lot of the art. Um, beyond that, you've still got this question of who's who and what's what and where to draw a line, and that was very important for me when I was doing this exhibition, because once you got to 30 artists, you were kind of getting to the limits of what even 12 very capacious galleries could hold. Mm -hmm. Thematically, and to get to the crux of your difficult question, <laughs> abstract expressionism, no matter what forms they were, were Mark Rothko's floating rectangles, Clifford Stills' jagged, um, almost metaphysical landscapes, if you like, have one thing in common. Abstract expressionism was meant to be the abstract language of the emotions. As Mark Rothko famously said, he was concerned with tragedy, ecstasy, doom. And if you get nothing else about the very diverse works in this show, I'd like to think that in some ways the artists have succeeded in finding abstract equivalents to states of emotion, joy, beauty, ecstasy, horror, the sublime, transcendence, and in Guston, in the last work in the show, a sense of terrible abjection. Wow. Um, within the program, we've already mentioned that the Jackson Pollock mural is a pivotal piece, and you have placed it in the gallery just across from another large work he did some years later called Blue Poles. Can you tell us a little bit about those two pieces and what they tell us about Jackson Pollock's work life? Well, we knew that, fortunately, thanks to UIMA, that mural was a given that it was going to come here. That was one of the first things we knew when we started to organize this show and also as a follow-on from a focus show around Muir, which has just been to Venice, Berlin, and the Castle Museum in Malaga. I had a vision, along with my co-curator, Edith Trevaney, in house curator of the Royal Academy, I had a vision of something facing off against Muir. And the one work which could just have been available and which was Pollock's swan song. It really was literally his, his swan song. It's Blue Poles of 1952. And we were pleasantly amazed when we knew that the director of the National Gallery of Australia had the vision and the courage not to sit on it, but to send it out into the world. And the moment we knew Blue Poles was coming here, we said to ourselves, these are going to be the two titanic bookends of Pollock's career. 
Because Murrow is the largest painting he ever did. 1943, that is precisely where to recall what de Kooning said about Pollock, Jackson broke the ice. And from, from that point on, and the thing about Murrow, there's nothing in Pollock's career up to that date which gives you any presentiment of what it's going to be like. Really? Up till then, he's been painting on a fairly, fairly modest scale. Getting stronger, like in Male and Female of 1942-43. But with Murrow, it's a seismic breakthrough. It's absolutely astonishing. And I thought, and I Edith agreed, we both thought, that if we put, put Murrow in apposition with blue poles, we will be bookending the meteoric nine years that's at a very crux, a height, the apogee of Pollock's whole career. And, and without wishing to, to talk up the exhibition too much, although Mural and Blue Poles were together in Kirkbarnado's uh, MoMA retrospective of 1998, they were in completely separate rooms because that show, that retrospective, was of course logically hung chronologically. Yeah. But Mural comes early on and Blue Poles comes very much later. Now we thought it's such an opportunity to happen together. And I can honestly say that I don't think we'll ever see them together like that again in our lifetimes. Well, for me, one of the most stunning things about this collection is the fact that you've grouped many of the, the ensembles are grouped by artists. So one can see the progression of the work by one or two artists in one of the same galleries. You have the beautiful Rothko. You referred to it earlier as a Rothko chapel, which feels that way to me. Chapel-like. But chapel-like, yes. But, um, but so often these paintings will be split up for various reasons and shown next to one another, not, not by the same artist. And um, this is really quite stunning. I think, to see it this way. Why did you decide to do that? Well, it's a huge moment. Mm -hmm. spans 50 years, at least 30 artists. And we have 12 galleries. Mm -hmm. And those galleries could have been like any layer cake, which is what Abex really is. Mm -hmm. They could have been cut in an enormously number of different ways. Mm -hmm. But we decided to have a mixture of thematic galleries for example, the gallery devoted to darkness, the initial gallery devoted to the early work, introduction, and crucially, four, five galleries devoted to which artists we see as the real core and pioneers. So early on, we've got Arshul Gorky, who really broke new ground in the 1930s and 40s. And then at the center of the show, we had to the west side, the Great Pollock Gallery, which is the largest gallery three in the whole of the Royal Academy. To the north of the Rothko Octagon at the centre, we've got the Koning. And to the east, we've got the second largest gallery devoted to Clifford Still. And one point which may not come across unless you, you read your wall text is that Still and Pollock are meant to countermand, countermand each other. Yes, and it's really, it's really remembered that Clifford Still, who was famously uh, irascible and, and difficult even, Clifford Still broke with virtually every other artist you can think of, including his um, sometime friend Mark Rothko. But the one artist that Clifford Still never broke with, and which is very relevant to Pollock here, is Pollock. Really? And it's not widely known that in 1956, Clifford Still had planned a road trip to take the failing alcoholic Pollock west. He thought it would be just the 
thing that needed to pull Pollock out of his slab, despair and alcoholism. They were due to actually rendezvous in Philadelphia before still, as a famous driver, had a Jaguar, uh, would take Pollock back to the West where he belonged. They're yeah. both Westerns, that's a key thing. But still got to Minneapolis, picked up a newspaper and found Jackson Pollock killed in car crash. So Jackson Pollock, as a rather dark joke, took the wrong kind of road trip. Oh. And I still said, he was, could still have been alive, could still have rediscovered himself, he'd have come back out west. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So just one last question before we go to these, um, to our other guests. To, to someone who's not an expert in this area, uh, me, Walking through, walking through the galleries, you see, I see some things that look kind of figured and fast, fast moving and sort of intentionally figured. Then there's the other, what is it called, the mark, the, uh, the violent mark? The violet mark, oh, right. yeah. yeah, and so that, that's got its own kind of look. Then you see these Rothkos, which just are sort of luminescent and incredibly, to me, initially, they don't look like they'd be part of the same phenomenon. To me, they look quite different. Um, what is it that ties them together as part of the abs You mentioned earlier that it's the emotion that they're trying the to get point. at. Mm -hmm. They're held together, one, by the fact that they're seeking a pictorial, abstract language of emotions, whether it's Rothko's, rectangles, or whatever. But probably the axis that binds these artists and their very different styles and visions together is extremes. Ah. On the one hand, you've got the extremes of Pollock's linear labyrinths. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you have the much more homogenous fields of, of Rothko's floating mm -hmm. rectangles. Mm -hmm. And it's a search for extremes, which I've always seen as being at the centre of abstract expressionism. You've got, you've got Ad Reinhardt's totally pristine black paintings that look as if they've been breathed on almost almost invisible. And then on the other hand, you've got de Kooning's lifelong involvement with figuration. So the figure, and absolutes and abstraction. And, and I see, I see Abex as this complex landscape, but with these axes going across mm -hmm. in that way. Partly sociological links, as I said earlier on. Partly the obsession with extremes. And extremes can go in one direction or the other. Wow. Thank you, thank you. Now, now let me move to you, Chris. And um, I, sometimes art and literature talk to one another. Sometimes they react against or in support of one another. What was happening in poetry and in literature at the same time this movement was developing or this phenomenon? Well, what's remarkable, I think one thing that held the movement together was a kind of friendship. And that friendship extended to the poets of the New York School of Poets, uh, Frank O'Hara, John Ashbery, Kenneth Koch, Barbara Guest. Uh, while the artists were going to the Cedar Tavern to drink, the poets were going to the San Remo, and then they would wander over to the Cedar Tavern to be a part of that conversation. The poets were writing about the artists. They were writing much more about uh, Pollock and Motherwell and de Kooning than they were writing about literary matters. They took their inspiration from the painters and tried to think how to translate what Pollock was doing in his action paintings into poetry. And so for O'Hara, that meant uh, writing these poems that he called his I do this, I do that poems. And he wrote many of them. On his lunch break, uh, he was working at the Museum of Modern Art. He was a curator there. He wrote a 
monograph on Pollock, and then he would go out for lunch. And walking through the streets, he would say, I do this, I do that, I'm noticing this, I'm noticing that, hoping to get all of the city life into his poems. And uh, Ashbery did the same thing, too. The other thing I might just notice is that um, uh, when Gorky uh, comes to New York and André Breton, the kind of pope of the French surrealism, uh, these are all people coming after the war or even during the war, and they're bringing a new spirit of adventure uh, in the air for Breton, writing uh, automatically, uh, depending on chance operations, and then poets thinking, I wonder if I can do something like that, and then seeing that their painter friends are already doing that and thinking, well, maybe we can make a marriage of convenience here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, of course, some, some of what we're talking about tonight is the University of Iowa relationship to all of this. And we have the famed writers' workshop, and uh, the international writing program started a little bit later than that. But were the writers at, at our workshop involved in any of this kind of uh, well, experimentation? Well, you have, you have, a, you have a, a real divide at that moment mm -hmm. in American poetic history. In the 50s, you have uh, the argument between what was called the raw and the cooked. The raw poets being people like O'Hara and Ashbery and Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac, the beat generation. And the cooked were more academically minded, uh, including some of the famous poets who taught at the workshop, like John Berryman, Robert Lowell. Um, the funny thing is, though, is somebody like Philip Gustin, who was teaching at the workshop, um, uh, teaching at the, in the art department, when he leaves Iowa, one of the people he becomes closest to is a poet who would clearly come out of the cooked tradition, Stanley Kunitz, and they even collaborated late in life on what they called poem paintings together. So you see that, uh, that, that marriage starting to take effect in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, but there was clearly a lot of tension. There's a famous story about Frank O'Hara reading with uh, Robert Lowell in New York. And O'Hara reads first. And he says, I'm going to read the poem I wrote on uh, the ferry coming across, the Staten Island ferry. And then it's uh, Lowell's turn to read. And... Uh, Lowell picks up a poem and he says, I'm not going to read the poem I wrote on the ferry over here. <laughs> the argument between spontaneity on one hand and uh, more meticulous craftsmanship on the yeah. other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do, these, do these kinds of movements or phenomena, whether literary or artistic, do they have a beginning and an end? Is there an end to the kind of writing the New York School of Poets uh, wrote in? And is there an end to abstract expressionism? Do we say that this phenomenon happened during these years, or does it continue to live in some slightly modified shape? Well, there are still uh, New York School of Poets writing. Uh, Ron Paget, famously, mm -hmm. who's mm -hmm. just published a new translation of the French poet Apollinaire. Of course, they're always looking to Paris for inspiration. Um, but what you could say is that the discoveries that O'Hara and Ashbery are making in the early 50s now ripple outward and they become two of the most important poets and influential poets so that people teaching at the writer's workshop, for example, uh, fall under the sway of poets like that. We had Jory Graham in residence for a very long time. She seems to me to, in profound ways, come right out of Ashbery, mm -hmm. and it's important to note that her mother, Beverly Pepper, was 
is, is a quite a famous uh, sculptor. Uh, but poets following in that tradition are they're they're taking their cues from mm -hmm. things that Ashbery has done and mm -hmm. continues to do. Mm -hmm. My my only point here would be that um, it's a chronological one. The New York School of Poets are really chronologically somewhat closer to the second generation abstract expressionists, yeah. and and the the first generation abstract artists. It's easy to parody them as kind of drunken, know-nothing, paint-slinging, macho, sexist, <laughs> something like that. And they have been parodied in that respect. But um, it's worth remembering that virtually all of them were pretty well read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, for example, Clifford Still, who's reading Aristotle's Poetics and Wordsworth's prelude in the 1920s and 30s. De Kooning reads Kierkegaard, William Faulkner, and I've, I've often asked, uh, suggested Blaise Pascal, the 17th century existentialist, uh, avant la lettre. Rothko reads famously um, Friedrich Nietzsche's A Birth of Tragedy. So these people are, they're, they're predisposed to literature. And even, and even the one who comes closest to being a sort of, I better be careful what I say, but numbskull, Jackson Pollock. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jackson Pollock said he had a way of feeling books. And, and he, read, he read Whitman, and he read, um, um, oh God. Darcy Thompson on growth and form, a great naturalist, and he took a lot from that. So um, we're dealing with people who are already being brought up and thinking in a quite a well-schooled context. So Guston, you know, he read the existentialist literature, Kafka, people like that. And, and I think it's important to see you've got, you know, you've got a succession, you've got that early initial deep reading, and then you've got O'Hara coming along and writing poems about a second generation uh, abex artist like Mike Goldberg. Well, he does write about Pollock, obviously, and very eloquently. So you've got a very rich um, compaction of two different schools and periods of thought. And, and Motherwell collecting all those Dada documents. All of that, uh, yeah. absolutely, yeah. absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, so Sean, uh, let's talk a little bit about the uh, process of getting the works from the University of Iowa um, mm -hmm. shown around the world. And, and uh, I know this has been many years in the planning, and um, we heard a little bit about some of the travels that have happened so far, but please tell us why you felt it was important to let this uh, amazing mural piece, first of all, it was important to get it um, uh, freshened up and go through conservation, but then also to take it out, not only across Iowa and the U.S., but internationally. Right, well, <clears throat> so um, I'm, I'm an outsider. I, I come into a state and I noticed a fantastic collection. I mean, utterly fabulous collection um, that is very little known by anyone outside. Um, now, my, my, my family being from the Midwest, I understand the, 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 the lack of desire to promote oneself and to, um, to think that other people have it better and that, you know, <laughs> We'll just, you know, put up with our lot sort of thing. Um, but, but it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's, uh, 
it really wasn't the case when it came to art and culture. And, I, and uh, the thing I'd become to realize was that, uh, began to realize was that, um, uh, you know, during the 19th century and early 20th century, the wealth of America and, and a lot of the world was in the Midwest. Um, and so, like uh, uh, a lot of good uh, Germans, of which a lot of them were Germans and Northern Europeans, um, they would start museums and orchestras. And, and, um, and so a, a lot of uh, very avant-garde thinking uh, occurred. And, um, and uh, I, I was just, I was just uh, uh, really amazed at the quality of, of the artwork. Um, uh, and then as I learned more about the history of the institution, I realized that there was a history. Uh, the first art, graduate art degree was, was created at the university in the early 1920s, given to Yves Drulo. Um, uh, there were all these sort of uh, new forms through writing and, 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 um, and dance and theater and music. Mm -hmm. uh, the MFA was yeah. basically invented there. Um, so I realized that there was a, a huge wealth of, 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 of history and knowledge and culture that I think was very little known. Yeah. Um, so really my, my, my mission, I felt, was how do I educate our, our own citizenry and then how do I educate the greater world about this? Um, and really I felt that perhaps I had to go outside first to come inside because of course people always believe experts on the outside, not on the inside. Um, so uh, as soon as I arrived, uh, that was sort of part of my mission. Um, and then this entire controversy came up about whether um, after the flood and then a recession, whether um, they should sell parts of the art collection, including mm -hmm. Pollock's mural. And uh, my thought was, well, you know, this, this is some of the most important creations of, of mankind. Uh, perhaps the, the, the most famous modern painting in America. And I thought, well, um, if, the, if people only knew how important this was, maybe they would have a different discussion rather than treat it like you would treat a, a, any object that you, that you owned. Um, I kind of liken it to you know, the Statue of Liberty or the Declaration of Independence. Um, yes, you could sell it. I'm sure you could make a lot of money. But it is part of your cultural heritage and what you are. Um, this collection was built up over 70, 80 years. And, and, and Iowa was the, was the beginning of, of the modern art movement. Uh, Peggy Guggenheim uh, famously gave parts of her collection, including Mural, because she recognized Iowa as, at, as being at the forefront of these new ideas. Um, modern art was, 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 was not viewed as, as uh, very well at the time. Uh, museums were collecting Rembrandt and Franz Halls. They looked at Pollock and, and Rothko as junk. Um, but, the, but the art school at the university um, needed to have examples of work that they could show their students. So this was a working collection. Um, uh, famously, Peggy Guggenheim offered to trade uh, a Georges Brock for one of the Pollocks, and one of the professors in the art department said, uh, Brock and the Europeans are yesterday's people. The, the future is American art. And, uh, and, and in fact, well, it was true uh, that that turned out to be the case, uh, particularly with abstract expressionism. So with this collection, I realized that we could tell a really interesting story. And I encountered uh, David. Um, David had um, uh, earlier proposed an exhibition on Pollock's mural. And so we contacted him. And we decided, why don't we 
put this on the road. Um, our museum had been flooded. We um, had only temporary locations. And we thought, well, look, this is it. This, this will never happen again. You'll never have this opportunity. Um, um, uh, I'm originally from Hawaii. So, so I guess it's sort of there's a kind of Buddhist view that, you know, in all disasters, there's this opportunity that you should look for. <laughs> and I thought, well, here it is. We're on the move. We're going to keep going. And, and, um, and this was an opportunity to actually have a, have a global movement rather than just a national movement. So we put together the project based on David's thesis. Uh, and his thesis was interesting because it was really presenting Pollock as someone who'd been influenced by um, action photography, um, new technology at the time, particularly during the war. Uh, and I thought that was fascinating. And so I thought, well, this would be a, a good opportunity. So um, um, putting all those parts together, making it more more famous and, and more well-known to people, I thought we will we'll put it on the road. And um, just as this project was developing, um, uh, another issue had occurred with the conservation. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I think people don't necessarily appreciate is um, when you look at paintings or works of art, you don't realize that, of course, all objects degrade over time. And, and so museums spend an enormous amount of effort and resources to keep things in tip-top shape. But, um, of course, you'll never see it because that's not the point. Um, so, so really, um, we, we thought that this was incredibly important. The painting had been uh, stretched and varnished in 1972 by the uh, then the conservator from the RSU of Chicago, a very famous conservator. And what he had done is he had not only framed it square, the painting is a curved painting, actually, mm -hmm. because Pollock had painted it in his uh, apartment in, in New York, and the apartment wasn't big enough, and so the painting was a little crooked. Um, but when they, when they framed it, they framed it square. So because of that, <clears throat> there were gaps sticking on the side, and Pollock famously wanted his paintings to be never-ending. So there was a strange border around it that occurred in 1972 stretching, and then they put um, a layer of varnish over the painting, which was then seen as a way of protecting the artwork. Mm -hmm. Well, Pollock never varnished his paintings, um, partially because he would use different paints, he would use mats, he would use gloss, he would undulate the surface, and once you put a, a a varnish over it, you've homogenized the entire surface. Mm. So that's what happened to the painting, and it protected to a certain extent. Um, but then we realized before it went on show, it really needs to be given um, um, a, a conservation job. And we thought, you know, where else to have a facelift but then LA, right? Nice. So, <laughs> so we, we, thought, we thought we would, uh, the Getty uh, Conservation uh, Institute, uh, which had a modern paints project, and the Getty Museum, um, they were very famous uh, for working with works of art. And um, we had approached them, and they initially said, absolutely not. They said, this is too big, too crazy. We can never, you know, never work on this painting. It would be impossible. I said, fine. Um, and, then, and then I waited a few months, and then I thought, and I wrote them again. Um, but this time I wrote them and I CC'd a couple people, um, <laughs> in, 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 including, the, uh, including the curator of paintings. And, um, and luckily, uh, he was so excited by this project that he came down and he, tw he twisted some arms. And of course, they were genuinely convinced that this was a good project. Mm. A good project because it was such a seminal painting in the beginning of modern art in the, in the world, but it was never really studied. Physically, it was never really analyzed. Mm. Um, so we uh, were very lucky that the Getty decided to work with us and take the painting. It was a two-year project. It was very long. Um, 
And it, the quid pro quo with that is that they do the conservation work and then they present the painting in an exhibition. So what happened was they, they, they worked on this painting, they took the varnish off, they restretched it. Only the Getty could have created a slightly curved canvas, perfectly curved canvas. Um, uh, and they uh, eventually, and they had conferences, they had numerous conferences, they wrote two books on it, they had, they invented a spectrometer, a laser spectrometer to read the surface of the painting that was so advanced that it went on the Mars rover to analyze <laughs> Mars. Okay, wow, so this is, wow. this is the level that the Getty is operating at. Uh, I think if the Getty were a university, it would be the 10th richest university in the world, mm -hmm. in the US, but mm -hmm. it, is, it, is, it is purely for the study of art. Mm -hmm. And we were very lucky, they, they, they did this work and then they put it up and they, um, uh, it, and it actually was kind of interesting, it was a one painting exhibition in 2014 and it had another room which was full of the science didactics about how they analyzed the material and how he created the painting and, 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 and a bit about the history. Um, and it became the most popular show in the history of the Yeti. Uh, 304,000 people saw it in a matter of 11 weeks. Um, and what was interesting was what they told us was that at the Getty, um, most of the people who uh, attend the, the Getty site actually don't necessarily go into the museum. They, they look at the site, they have a meal, they, they, oh, they get away really? from Los Angeles, which mm. is understandable, and they, and, and, but they don't go into, they don't go into the, uh, to the it's a Hawaii, Los Angeles, you know. Sort of <laughs> but, um, but in this case, they said that the numbers had inverted. They said that instead of 80% not going into the museum, 80% went into the museum. Now, I know that Pollock has a draw, of course, but the other thing I think what was very interesting about this was that it, the exhibition described the process. And I think a lot of people, when they look at art, they don't, they don't, they don't know what they're looking at, they're, they're confused or whatever, which is entirely justified. But when they can see how it's made, the process and what the, what the artist did to get there, of course, they, 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 they link to that and they, they find that interesting. And so there are many ways that that could be communicated. Mm -hmm. And that became a show that we then rolled out to, uh, with the Getty's permission to uh, Sioux City and then in the Malaga mm -hmm. and we had parts of it in Berlin. And it worked out, it worked out very, very well. Then it went on the road mm -hmm. and... You should also say you had many celebrities taking selfies with the... Yeah. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. yes. Famously, uh, Steve Martin was very happy with the... He's a, a, a great art aficionado. Yeah. Um, and then we ended up taking it to, uh, a, a, as a show to eventually, uh, through Iowa, because we wanted the Iowans to at least see that uh, first in Western Iowa. And then, and it was there for the 100th anniversary of the Sioux City Art Center. And then the timing was perfect, because then it opened at the Venice Biennale um, at the Peggy Guggenheim collection, where David and Pham's show, Jackson Pollock's Mural Energy Made Visible. Mm -hmm. And we were very lucky because it opened essentially in Peggy Guggenheim's living room. Wow. And you have to realize this painting was created for Peggy Guggenheim's apartment, and it was a hallway, part of a hallway that was only 13 feet wide. So uh, as David had mentioned in the, uh, earlier, the painting was, a, 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 was an installation. You walked in the painting. It was not a painting over a mantelpiece or anything like that. It was a painting that you participated mm -hmm. in, which is the great shift mm -hmm. you know, from a normal painting. Um, and in this case, it took up the entire wall. Mm -hmm. it, it was um, opposite hung the uh, Elegy of the Smash Republic by Robert Motherwell, which was painted as a sort of companion painting mm -hmm. for the museum. Um, and people got that sort of domestic feel that you would get from the original intention, mm -hmm. 
from the by the by the artists. And, and it's also <coughs> when you're seeing a painting like that very close up, as you perform a picture, you perform swerve in Venice, you you get a different kind of jolt. Um, you're, you're you're in it, and, and it's more compacted as well. Um, I, I must be transparent here because um, this project has gone on a little longer than you might think. The the mural focus project, and um, you know things like the, the the economic downturn of 2008 didn't exactly help matters because we thought it would have to be a smaller show. And and to be to be very honest, when Sean told me he was going to send it to the Getty, I worried because I couldn't I could see it never getting done. And the Getty would say it's so big, it could take another five years, and by that time. Acts of God, lightning, floods may have happened, and who knows, you know. But um, I went to the Getty three times. And um, the first time I went, it was rather funny because the scheduling got a bit mixed up. And when I, when I got to the Getty, it was uh, December, a couple of years back, it was down, face down, and it couldn't be moved. <laughs> <laughs> so I had all due respect to the Getty, because you can't, you can't be exactly sure how a schedule of something so complex as a cleaning of this enormous um, linen, it's not canvas, by the way, it's linen, it's expensive Belgian linen. And one of the reasons why uh, structurally mural has held up so well is that it was painted on expensive basket weave, two over three basket weave, Belgian linen. And, and linen is much more durable than canvas. And, and amazingly, um, the Getty determined that the, um, the Belgian company, Kleissen, who supplied the linen, they're still trading today. It's astonishing. But because that was expensive, it must have been bought by Peggy. There's no yeah. question about that. Yeah. And, and another, another point is that this was the only time Pollock ever allowed himself to be photographed in front of a blank canvas. And he knew, in that summer of 1943, he knew this was his appointment with destiny. It's this huge canvas. He's only been working on a relatively modest scale before that. And he comes up against this epic canvas to fill. And so he knows he's photographed in front of it. And there's a famous photo of him in shadows with the blank canvas there. Um, and another thing I have to say is that there has to be a benign God somewhere because the serendipitous timing of the Pollock tour, the focus show, Venice, Berlin, Malaga, with the opening in London, is something which you, you couldn't plan if you tried. It just, just worked exactly. <laughs> and, and to get the painting here in a totally different context, hugely expanded. I mean, I mean, Venice, Berlin was about, with the photos, Berlin was about 80 works, but that basically it was still a small show. And to see me all here again, to come back to your point, Joan, you know, in a completely different context, it's, it's remarkable. Mm -hmm. And, and the, clean, the cleaning of the Getty is something that I changed my mind about. I, mean, I think I even sent Sean an email saying, I'm, I'm against this, it's going to take too long, you know, and it'll disappear into the vanishing point of history and all that. Right. But uh, when I finally saw Muir, and I'd seen it in Iowa, I'd seen it in Kurt Bernardo's 1998 MoMA Pollock retrospective, and I'd seen it quite relevantly when it came here in 1993. Um, Norman Rosenthal put on a, 
uh, survey of American art in the 20th century, and one of his coups was to persuade. I think he had a row there. He's famously it was it was they they got a fight with Blue Peter. <laughs> the Blue Peter crew filmed it, and yes, they didn't like well. it. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but whenever I saw it, it, it was like looking at um, a magnificent vintage car in bad shape. It hadn't had a proper clean or, you know, revealed in its full grandeur. And when I went back to the Getty for the third time, and I have a chronology, I can't remember. When was that? When, they, when was the show? Uh, it was uh, July 2014. 2014, yeah, two years ago. And I, I stood in front of it in the uh, conservation studio, and the Getty, Getty's amazing, you know, as Sean says. It's, even the conservation studio is extraordinary because you have a huge panoramic view of the San Bernardino range. It must be the most <laughs> spectacular. Conservation studios tend to get, you know, stuck around the back of it. You know. um, and I, I, I saw it, and, and I said to myself, and I don't, I don't know if I'll get my point, but I stood in front of it, took a deep breath, and I said, the Rite of Spring, it had been reborn with the varnish taken off of it. So it had exactly the same visual feel as you still get with that electric, barbaric excitement when you hear the Rite of Spring in the concert hall. And it's, it's a very barbaric work. And there's a point which people may forget. Not only did its huge scale jumpstart abstract expressionism. I mean, Rothko had been painting quite small until then. And he actually saw it, and he said, why would anyone want to paint, uh, if I'm, I'm correct, why would anyone want to paint something this size? And then in 1944, Rothko suddenly produces the biggest painting of his career to date, the painting in Murrayman called Slow Swirl at the Edge of the Sea. Same applies to Arshul Gorky. Gorky's been painting quite small, Suddenly, 1944, he paints a work in Buffalo called The Liver is a Coxcomb, the biggest painting of his whole career. So it, it jump-started the idea of, of Abex being essentially, in many ways, an epic, an epic art. And, and I just thought that the cleaning, you know, you look at it, and before that brown varnish, you know, that's gone. You can get the sense of Pollock's application, there's newfound confidence of mark-making, there's areas where he's thrown paint on, there's other areas where he's filled in uh, arabesques with very broad strokes and all that. But also the colour, because mm -hmm. that colour was not evident before the cleaning. Mm -hmm. And what you can see now, you can see it's rather acid, electric hues in that. There's a lemon yellow and there's a, there's a crimson colour. They're very much closer to the work which I have argued is one of the sources behind Muir, and that is um, Pablo Picasso's famous painting of 1932, in moment called Girl Before the Mirror. And, and uh, you know, that has arabesques and, and curves like that and doublings. And, and I'm sure that that was in Pollock's mind. We know he was fascinated by that particular um, Picasso. And also, I think there's a touch of Matisse about the colours. Yes. There's something there, you know, it's extraordinary. And, and, and really, you know, just one final point. What Pollock discovers in Muir is something that's going to be the very, very lifeblood of his poured paintings, and that is repetition. Because Pollock's great poured canvases are based on repetition. And repetition can be boring, but it can also be very exciting. 
With some of the greatest poems, their structure is based on repetition. And this is one reason why people, as a book coming out in the year or so time, people are arguing that Pollock's poured canvases, ones done on the floor, are actually fractals. And fractals are repeated. Shapes like that, you know, bocklets, sprouts, things like that. Trees make up fractals as well. And the fractals depend on repetition, and it's repetition in kinds and new. As, as a force in itself. So actually, um, David makes an interesting point, and, and this is what I want to illustrate, uh, or rather what he illustrates. Um, by, by, by putting Pollock's mural on tour, by putting this art on tour, we, we attract great scholars like David, who is based in London, and he talks to... Too late to, for flattery, Sean. And he talks to, <laughs> he talks to the world. Yeah. And, and, and if we were to keep the collection in our small town, in our mm-hmm. state, mm-hmm. the world would not know mm-hmm. about this. And, and, and we could not tell that story. Mm-hmm. But instead, we, we bring it out, and then the whole world celebrates. And we have the Getty scientists doing amazing work. We have David here and his colleagues doing amazing work. And I think that's, it, it's, it's about um, providing the material for scholars around the world to collaborate on projects because you can't do it on your own. Mm-hmm. And, and we have expertise and he has expertise and the Getty's expertise. And it's really about matching all these people together because then as a whole, you're much greater mm-hmm. and you have a much greater impact on, on, the, on the furtherance of knowledge and, and advancing ideas than you would be in your own small town in, mm-hmm. in, in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And I always think, you know, that... I'm not running America down, but I'm certainly not running Iowa or Iowa City down. But, you know, places like Iowa or even Denver, where Clipperstool Museum is, you know, Toledo, uh, Ohio, they're not Paris, Rome, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, or Vienna. But what never ceased to amaze me since I first visited those collections in 1977, extraordinary quality. I mean, I mean you have a tremendous collection. It's up there with the very best university collections. But you can't expect the whole world to come to Ireland. I had a lovely dinner in Iowa. I enjoyed it very much. That's I the challenge. wonderful walking around. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny because people say the same. To show I'm trying to be objective. They say the same about Denver. Mm. They go to Denver. They catch the, get their rental car. And they go west, they go over the Rockies, and they, don't, they forget that they've got one of the great single artist museums in the world in Denver, and the Denver Art Museum too is great. But, but you know, American cities are like that. And, and it's not Denver, Toledo, which is a wonderful collection, Iowa, mm-hmm. even New Orleans. They're not art destinations. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. yeah. And so I think what you've done, you've taken or whatever it is, a mountain to Muhammad, I don't know whichever way around it is, or, you know. Um, and, 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 you know, you've let in light and air. Mm-hmm. So that when it finally gets back there and settles in its permanent home, it's seen the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, wow, what a nice way for us to end this conversation. Thank you very much for bringing, bringing this uh, painting here to, to London, this extraordinary exhibit. And thank you all for joining us in this conversation. So thank you, Sean O'Hara, Christopher Merrill, and Dr. David thank Anfum. Uh, thank you so much. I'm Joan Kerr, and you've been listening to World Canvas from the University of Iowa and International Programs. This program will be available uh, online, YouTube and iTunes very shortly. And we want to say thank you very much to my colleague, Dana Simcox, 
Talks. I don't know where you are, Dana, from the University Foundation. Thank you, Dana, for your hard work, and to our friends from RG Jones who have done all of this uh, beautiful setup for us tonight. Thanks to all of you for coming, and uh, we'll see you next time. Good night. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.